everyone. Welcome back to the Faculty of Horror podcasting from the Horrid Halls of Academia. We're from New Horrid Halls. New Horrid Halls, and I'm Alex West. And I'm Andrea Subasati. And welcome to our November episode of the Faculty of Horror. I know we're towards the end of the year, but this feels like a real fresh start in some ways. Well, yeah. I've got bangs. You've got bangs. We're in a brand new fact studio. Which is so much brighter. I see daylight. Yeah. I wonder how it's going to affect the content. Like, maybe we'll be happy. Maybe. Maybe it's just been ongoing seasonal depression whenever we record. I mean, this is a dark subject we're tackling today. Yeah. But, you know, before we get into what we're going to talk about today, we have a lot to say, quite frankly. But we just want to remind everyone that next month, December 2022, is our 10-year anniversary. And we are celebrating with a live show here in Toronto. Uh, We're doing a live show December 7th at the Garrison. If you don't already have your tickets and you want to come, make sure you get on it. Tickets, info, all of that good stuff is going to be linked in the show notes. And be sure you stay tuned to the very end of the episode because we will be announcing what we will be covering in that episode. I am so excited. I think it was such a great idea. It was your idea, so kudos to you for that. I think it's perfect for our 10th anniversary. And yeah, we'd really love to see you out. Uh, I don't think tickets are going to last very much longer. They are pay what you can with uh, all proceeds going to sistering. So so they're very affordable to put it that way. Yeah. And uh, it'll fill up, but we'd love to see you there. And um, you know, if not, that is going to be our December episode. So you will have access to that content eventually. Yeah. Come party with us. Actually, after we record this episode, we have to talk through some of the audience participation bits. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. All right. Andrea, you just moved into a new home. I don't. How do you feel about it? Well, you know, it's uh, it's definitely an experience. It's an experience that is physically taxing and emotionally draining. The packing was nightmarish and weird. It was weird to see all your stuff come out of boxes and be like, what is this? Do I need this? What connection does this have to me and my life? And what connection can it bring to me and my new space? Uh, so I was thinking about that a lot in, in, in preparing for this episode. I have a feeling this subgenre is kind of your shit, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I have a very, I think, visceral reaction to it. And today we are talking about the 2006 film Them and the 2008 film The Strangers. And this was voted on over on our Patreon. Mm -hmm. So it was chosen by some of you guys. And it's pretty tight. It was very tight. I think we talked about that last episode, but uh, we're excited to be talking about this one. There is such a sense of like proprietorship when you're in a home mm. and there's such a kind of tenuous grasp with safety. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to talk more about like the realness of these films, actual incidents of home invasion. But I had uh, something happen a couple months ago. I also moved a few months ago and uh, I live in this really nice apartment. It's the floor of a house. And a couple months ago in the dead of night, and Andrea, you've been over, like, when we've ordered food, so you've heard the doorbell at my house. Mm-hmm. It's loud. It's like a real buzz noise. Yes. Like, 1.30 in the morning, my doorbell goes off, wakes me out of a dead sleep, and I'm like, guess who's not fucking going down there? <laughs> this guy. Uh-huh. So I didn't go down. Yeah. And then there was no more doorbell rings, and I was just like, okay, just going back to sleep. And then I heard from my downstairs neighbors, who I'm friends with, yeah. that... 
uh, someone had come up to our door and rung all of the doorbells. And the guy downstairs, this really lovely guy named Dugan, who is a former skateboarder and now a university professor. So he's got that kind of skateboardy attitude with like academic chutzpah to him. Uh He's a cool guy. He apparently like went to the window and there was a guy standing on the porch and he was like, Hey man, what do you want? And he was like, uh, I think my brother-in-law is here. And Dugan went, no, no one here like that. And he had to like talk the guy off the porch for like a few minutes. Okay. And it hasn't come back since. Yeah. But it was definitely creepy. Is that the closest you've come to a home invasion experience? Pretty much. Yeah. I've never had a robbery. I've never had anything like that. See, I have. I have been uh, burgled an apartment of mine in Ottawa. I was an undergrad and my laptop was stolen and I had to rewrite all my term papers for that semester. My profs were very sympathetic. Um, but yeah, that, that happened to me. I was at work and my roommate was at work. And when he got home, he called me at work and was like, hey, this happened. The police were on their way. You need to come home. Uh, so that happened. And then in that same apartment, I think I've told you this before, but... I actually woke up in the middle of the night to someone at the foot of my bed. Have I never told you this? I don't think so. It was someone I, I I sort of knew. He had come over before as a guest with a couple of other friends. And, you know, he'd smoked a couple of joints in my living room. And uh, it was late at night and he was hammered and murmuring. And I was like, dude, what the fuck are you doing in my house? And he's like, Ugh. and he went to get in bed with me. And I got up and I was like, no, 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 you have to sleep on the couch. Come on over to the couch. And I coddled him. I treated him like a child and I put him up that night. And it wasn't until years and years and years later that I was like, holy fucking shit. I should have stabbed him. I should have literally murdered him. But instead I accommodated him. And furthermore, that experience doesn't stick out in my mind as especially traumatizing. I've never been especially afraid of home invasion horror, even though I've had that experience. And uh, I thought that was really interesting. And I mentioned it in my Twitch community and somebody else echoed that statement that they'd been burgled before and they'd had their home invaded before. And because they'd had it happen to them and it wasn't the end of the world, it didn't seem like quite such a big deal. And so whenever we approach home invasion horror, and this isn't the first time, I know we did an episode on uh, and funny games for sure. Was there something else? Oh, probably. Yeah. In 10 years? Come on. Um, but, but I always wonder if this is something uh, that we really build up in our heads. And I really want to talk about that. We're mm-hmm. going to talk about that in the episode and how much of this is a real threat, how much of it is imagined, and why is it so disturbing mm-hmm. to us? Why have so many films been made about it? And I think these two films really closely mirror each other. And so I'm really interested to talk about each film, but also then kind of dig into how they complement each other, Mm -hmm. so to speak. They do. They really do. And I want to ask you, do you consider this a direct remake, an Americanized remake? I kind of do, but I've seen like different things about it. Yeah. I feel like it's different enough. And I think they were close enough in a year that people are like, ah, they're just kind of about the same thing. They're two different takes on the true crime that we're going to talk about. But um, yeah, I wanted to get your sense on that. Yeah. But uh, without any further ado, let's get into it. And we're going to start with 2006's Il or Then. Hello? Hello? 
the still of the night, we hear things. We see things. We imagine things that aren't always there. But tonight, your imagination isn't playing tricks. And neither are they. Europe is coming to America. are a French couple living in Romania in a large home in a rural area that appears to be at least partially under construction. Clementine is a French teacher at a school in the nearby urban center, and Lucas seems to be working on a book. One night, they are awoken to music and noise and discover Clem's car being driven away. Soon, the culprits begin entering the house and menacing them. Clem and Lucas discover that the intruders are kids who all work together. Eventually, Clem and Lucas flee the house. Lucas is murdered by the children, and Clem attempts to escape through sewer pipes, but is also caught by the children. The film ends with the children regrouping and getting on a bus. Text appears on screen that explains that the bodies of Clem and Lucas were found a few days later. When the children are apprehended and questioned, the youngest one explains that the attacks occurred because, quote, they wouldn't play with them. Yep. How'd you feel about this movie? This was your first time seeing this it. This was my first time watch. Um... I have to say that I liked it. I didn't love it. It was taut. It was compact. I always appreciate a, a quick runtime. I think this one's like, what, 70, 80 minutes? Yeah, like, both these films under 90 minutes. Nice little quickies. Uh, it didn't waste any time. It, it was very relentless, which I appreciated that the, the tension was sustained. But uh, but it, it was one of those movies where I didn't have a whole notebook full of notes at the end of it. I had a notebook open and in my lap as I yeah. watched, but there wasn't a lot I jotted down. It was, uh, I had to let it simmer. Uh, so I wrote about this film in my book about New French Extremity. So I have a few thoughts from there, a few more I've developed, and uh, some just kind of, I think, grounding history that I would really like to share. Yeah, so I'm interested in how it fits in with the New French Extremity or, or how it doesn't fit into the New French Extremity. A lot of the research I saw was that it, you know, the New French Extremity is more a movement of um, attitudes and filmmakers than necessarily the tangible bits of the blood and gore, right? I think there's a few ways at it. I think you've got, and I wrote about this in my book, you've got this really strong art house movement that lay the foundation of um, thematic elements, a high degree of artistry to it, a really visceral nature mixed with a philosophical and historical take that 
feeds the narratives. And then as we get to high tension and then kind of feeding all the way through like martyrs and inside, it really moves to a pure horror movement mm-hmm. away from the art house. And so I definitely consider them, this film, as part of that movement. An early part of it. Well, it kind of falls in between. So if we think High Tension is like 2003 and Martyrs Inside is like 2008-ish, this falls right in the middle. All right. And another thing I talked a lot about in my book is that the filmmakers who are really part of the pure horror movement, these French directors, love horror. I Mm -hmm. think you can tell that through any of these films, also this one. And um, there isn't a huge tradition of the horror film in France. Film is viewed as like art and it is upheld to this really high degree, but the horror is always seen as lowbrow. So this really like intense movement of very, you know, violent, dark uh, horror is, is still part of it. And it still kind of teases out a little bit of torture porn and a more general new European extremity. Um, with a couple other films were mentioned um, in a little bit. Yeah, no, I think it's absolutely part of it. And I think it also goes to speak about, and I think for any film part of the new French extremity, it has to speak to some kind of historical element mm-hmm. and some kind of panic about French identity. Okay. So let's start in the first moments of this film. This is apparently a quote-unquote true story. Right. Uh, both these films purport to be true. We're going to talk about that. But the origin of this true story um, comes from an interview with one of the directors. This film is written and directed by David Moreau and Xavier Palud. And uh, David Moreau gave an interview to the British film magazine Empire. And this is a quote from Moreau. The truth is that we started shooting a commercial and the driver became our friend and told us a story. We like the idea about two people in a house being assaulted by unseen people. We wanted the end to be very strong. Are they good or bad? We don't really know. They're just here. Hmm. So, I mean, that's like, that's a real tenuous grasp on the truth. And of course, the film opens. um, It's set in Romania, which is my first immediate, like, why are we set in Romania? What happened in Romania? I should start on the Google of Romania. Um, but we start with a mother and daughter who are terrorized in their car in a scene that I find very, very effective. Super effective. Like you're drawn into their relationship, which is a total red herring. Why are you like this with your dad? She's fickle. Like I, I think the bulk of the notes that I did start to write about this were about their dynamic and then zoop. They are gone. They are just uh, a precursor. And that's not to say that I think that scene is um, unnecessary, uh, which we'll get into, but yeah, just an amuse-bouche. And I think it kind of teases as any good amuse-bouche does for the main course. Mm -hmm. So it has a couple of the thematic strains that uh, any good opening should have that the rest of the film is going to explore more deeply. But let's talk about Romania. Before working on my book, the only thing I really knew about Romania was that uh, Vlad the Impaler is supposed to be from there. Mm -hmm. That's all I had. But in my research, I found that they had a leader um, in the latter half of the 20th century uh, by the name of Nicolae Ceausescu. He was the second and last communist leader of Romania, and he came to power in 1966, and he was in power until his overthrow in 1989. He led through force and brutality, like most kind of pseudo-fascist socialist dictators generally do. Um, and one of his most infamous laws 
was Decree 770, and this came into effect in 1966, or right as he took power. This Decree 770 was a ban on birth control and made abortions illegal. This was to counteract Romania's low birth rate. The goal was to grow the population from 23 million in 1966 to 30 million by the year 2000. Shortly after this came into law, New problems surfaced. No kidding. Child abandonment became huge, as well as soaring infant mortality rates. I'm not going to go into this because there's a lot of really dark, sad history around this period. Um, But as you can imagine, it's really fucked when you take people's access to healthcare and birth control and are essentially forcing a population to grow. Oh, yeah. And especially when you look at the discourse happening around reproductive rights now about how it's for the betterment of the children. And of course, we're worried about women's reproductive rights and 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 health and stuff like that. But, you know, the, the other side of the argument doesn't stand that, uh, you know. Well, not- when you take away abortion, access to birth control, you have to ensure that there is some amount of community services, health care that is going to, you know, help kids through the first years of life, help families, you know, remain families and remain together. Mm-hmm. Those things don't really happen. And to get even darker, uh, women who did not produce children were rounded up and questioned. Holy and the areas that did not meet birth quotas were penalized through heavy taxation. That's boggling. So following the Romanian Revolution of 1989, when Ceausescu was overthrown, the country still grappled with access to birth control and safe abortion after decades of misinformation. Uh So the idea that in Romania, there are these like packs of children. Feral children. Yeah, roaming around, causing havoc is not that far from like a real idea. It's, it's an overwrought, filmatized version of it. But the idea that there's nothing for them to do, no one to play with, it's very real in some ways. And it's almost funny to me that it's so much scarier, that reality. Like had that, this is not based on a true story, but it's based on a real situation. You know, I think it would have made this film so much more um, subversive and critical and ballsy. Well, you know, it's it's a tricky thing. And I, and I think, um, I know we have some European listeners, but I don't think, you know, as, as you know, North American millennials. I had a big sense of Romanian history until I had the question of why the hell is this set in Romania? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this was one of the first things that came up Mm -hmm. of Romania in the 20th century. And I was like, oh, okay, fucking checks out. Yeah. The extent to which, uh, like you growing up, I didn't know anything about Romania beyond like Transylvania, Dracula, Vlad, stuff like that. I did read that uh, Romania joined the European Union in 2007, um, just a bit after this film came out. And so, you know, it would also stand to reason that there were some anxieties around the time surrounding cultural imperialism. And so, you know, I think it's noteworthy that, uh, you know, Clem as a teacher and Lucas as a writer are, you know, these figures who are significant in bringing art and literature to the next generation and they're so, perpetuating a culture that's right but which culture but which culture so let's talk about friends one of my favorite topics really so in 2002 and we've been talking a bit about the european union as we did in our last episode in 28 days later but in 2002 france gives up 
the franc, which is their currency, and it adopts the euro as part of their partnership in the European Union, which they joined way back in 1957. They were one of the first. This simple act of getting rid of their currency in favor of adopting a more generalized currency along with the rest of the European Union, as it does, made a whole fucking panic among the kind of right-wing nationalists, which we have discussed were already coming to a head at this time in France. Um, there was a sense like, oh no, we're losing our identity and we're going to have open trade and open borders and oh no, this is France going to hell. Meanwhile, on the other side of that is that, as we can see what's kind of happening now with the UK and Brexit, if you don't band together and you work together, you're going to lose a lot of your power. Mm -hmm. You know, you just don't No country unless you're really the States right now. And even then, ooh, um, it has that kind of power and autonomy anymore. After World War II, these countries were decimated and they really struggled to just kind of get back on their feet. So as you were already mentioning, I think this film provides that really fascinating allegory where we have this French couple, they have no children, mm -hmm. they have ample space and property in a country that seems to be completely foreign to them. They can occupy and take up residence there. Seemingly no problem. You know, not really speak the language. Clem kind of can. Mm -hmm. uh, Lucas seems to absolutely non. Clem, as, as you already mentioned, she's a teacher. And one of the things I found so fascinating in that brief scene of her in the classroom mm -hmm. is she says to her colleague later uh, when they're walking in the halls that they were really rambunctious that day. So she calmed them down with French dictation. Uh -huh. And I was like, yeah, that is beating something down through a forced cultural moment. Yeah. It's a very colonizing attitude. And then to talk a bit about this house they're in and I, I think I call it my book or something, this kind of crumbling chateau. Totally. Yeah. It's this sparsely furnished, semi-renovated, maybe still being renovated home. And it's kind of, to me, a representation of the remnants of the French empire and the power that they had absorbed and taken through their colonialism. Mm. You saw it as symbolic of which where they came from and not where they had arrived. Yeah, because they're not trying to truly integrate. Right. They're not, you know, living in a residential area where they might get to know their neighbors, where they might get to interact with the community or, mm -hmm. you know, the society or the culture. They're like, fuck that. We're going to our big property. Mm -hmm. Way away. I think she mentions like at least a half an hour drive. There's no one around them and they are completely isolated. Yeah. Now, I think Clem and Lucas, and you know, we're going to talk a bit about gender in this episode, which I know. Um, as we're talking about their roles within this community and society that they have created really for themselves, they're, mm -hmm. you know, not trying to integrate, they're doing their own thing. Clem travels for work. She has to drive in. She has to drive out. She has outside contacts with her colleagues. She can, you know, as we see when she's on the phone with the police, she can kind of speak the language. Meanwhile, Lucas is at home mm -hmm. working on a book. And we have no sense of if he's like a professional author, if this is his first book, mm -hmm. but he's happy to play video games and dick around and yeah. make shitty meals. And he doesn't speak the language. One of the most fascinating scenes in this film is um, when he runs outside and he sees the car being driven away right before that, he goes out and he starts yelling in French. Quelqu'un?
Y'a quelqu'un Reste là Feeling um, like lost within the space of the film, 
Mm-hmm. And it, like, it, I, and I think that's very intentional. Like sure. it feels quite disorienting. It feels really like unsettling and spooky and like, Oh, I mean, the house is just sprawling. Yeah. An attic with two levels and those curtains and sheets. And then it gets really claustrophobic. Like it makes such effective use, both big and spacious and tight and tiny. And I think it's a great sense of like, there's just two people alone in this huge house. Mm -hmm. Even if they finish doing it up or whatever their plans were, like, what are you going to do with all that space? Well, I thought of that too. And I was almost wondering, I was almost questioning myself. And, you know, as someone in a childless couple who was living in a three bedroom house, I think, you know, my neighbors were definitely like, do you have kids? Are you about to have kids? Are you going to fill up that house? And there is an expectation that you fill up the space. I think we're going to talk more about houses and property and privilege a little later when we get to the next movie. But, uh, but I thought of that too, is that I wasn't even clear on whether or not they were married, much less if they had plans to have and kids. And again, I think it's that kind of ambiguity that I think is very intentional, but I also feel like, oh, it's that European thing of like, this is my partner. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also find it interesting because they don't have kids. They seem to have no interest in kids. Clem seems kind of that she cares about teaching, but she's also, you know, like, fuck those kids. They're yeah, awful yeah. today. Uh-huh. Um, and so I, I find it very interesting that you've got, you know, this couple in this huge house who, for whatever reason, don't have kids. Mm-hmm. And or again, for these reasons that we'll, we'll talk about in a moment, this pack of children shows up mm-hmm. and that by rejecting this kind of heteronormative stasis of having kids, it's like this subverted, perverted version of a family shows up Mm -hmm. and demands to be entertained. Mm -hmm. Okay. And does that tie in with the opening scene as well with the mom and the sister? I think so. Again, the disconnect, the inability to communicate with each other, um, the the lack of being able to reach out and meaningfully work together. Uh This kind of generational, locational disconnect seems to be kind of the downfall of these characters. And it's not why the kids are targeting their characters. That much is like, is very clearly senselessness. They didn't want to play with us, which is, you know, supposedly chilling or whatever. But thematically, it does link the two together really nice. Yeah. And I think, you know, for me, like, I find that last, you know, text on screen, like, really fucked up and really haunting. And it's just because it's such a simple twist. Um, Like, I get if it doesn't work for you. But we spent this whole film being like, you know, in the shoes of Clem and Lucas. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, actually, no, they are the titular them. Yeah. Whereas, you know, the whole film you're thinking, oh, the other is the kids invading. Whereas it's like, no, they wouldn't play with us. Mm-hmm. And then when you think about, okay, they're a French couple in this country and they don't really know anything about it. And like, whose claim to ownership is real? Right. What is more real? What is a more powerful reason for being in a space and occupying a space? Yeah. And I think it kind of ties into, you know, again, like, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. Well, shit. Um, like, how does that tie into colonialism? How does that tie into everything else? Like, this kind of French joie de vivre, like, we'll just fuck off and mm-hmm. go buy this house. And it's like, well, do you actually know where you are? Mm-hmm. Do you know what this means? Do you know what this location is? Wow. You know? And and so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this other kind of like sub-sub-genre in the late aughts, early teens, and it's called hoodie horror. New term to me. Love it. So hoodie horror really emerged within the British film industry again, kind of uh, late aughts, early teens with films like Eden Lake, 
Harry Brown, Citadel. And in these films, the antagonists are youths mm-hmm. with hoodies. Mm-hmm. They are packs. They, you know, are into nefarious things. Sometimes they're more um, supernatural. Sometimes it's very, you know, very real. But it was this real panic. It is a culturally loaded garment, yeah. isn't it? And I, I feel like maybe just regionally we should, we are referring to a hoodie, which is to say a hooded sweatshirt. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I used to date somebody from Saskatchewan who used to call them bunny hugs. And I was Excuse like, me? as a weird slang sometimes way of saying it. And he's like, no, like we don't say hoodie. Anyway, it's to me a garment that is associated with youth because it is very casual. It's kind of borderline active wear, but because of the uh, identity cloaking ability of the hoodie, it's also associated with maybe crime, maybe mischief, obscuring identity. Exactly. You can hide your face. Yeah. So it has, yeah, again, like that really strong link to crime. And I found this really great article um, on The Guardian, which we'll link in the show notes, and it's called Hoodie Strike Fear in British Cinema by Jane Graham. And this is a quote from that article. What separates hoodies from youth cultures of previous moral panics, the teddy boys, the mods and rockers, the punks, the ravers, who've all had their day at the cinema, is they don't have a pop culture weight the other subcultures have, whose members are bonded through music, art, and customized fashion. Instead, they are defined by their class, perceived as being bottom of the heap and their social standing and their relationship to society is always seen as oppositional. Hoodies aren't kids or youngsters or even rebels. In fact, in a recent research by women in journalism on regional and national reporting of hoodies, shows that the word is most commonly interchanged with yob, thug, lout, and scum. Okay, so this is referring to like the term hoodie as the people wearing them. Yes. So before hoodie horror became its, you know, its own thing, mm-hmm. there's this real panic in England. And I think it still goes on about like lower class kids from subsidized housing who would have nothing to do. So they'd roam around and commit crime. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was a lot of hand wringing about it. Again, it kind of got into its own moral panic, as the article mentioned. And so a lot of these films have a really strong right wing take on it. Mm -hmm. I think the most progressive of the lot is probably the film Attack the Block. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Which I love. I think that's a great film. And it's kind of the progressive outlier because there's a lot of initial fear about the kids and their hoodies and who they are and they're racialized. Uh, But then they have the opportunity to be heroes and save London, which alert they do mm-hmm. and it's it's incredible like it's a great sci-fi almost horror film yeah um but all these other films and I, that's why i want to include them in this conversation is whether supernatural or you know cinema verite these hoodies kind of move more as a pack andrea you already used that word feral mm-hmm. you know there's this kind of um anonymous quality to them but they all seem to function as part of a hive mind almost and to me, I think this is all a kind of right-wing narrative about a suspicion of socialism and spending through subsidized housing and it kind of, you know, bleeding into that healthcare and politics space. Like, um, you know, we've subsidized housing and we don't want to pay taxes for the, like all of that right-wing nonsense that people parrot again and again. And the thing is, is the right-wing governments in these countries often just gut those programs. Mm -hmm. So, you know, affordable housing is a huge issue, I think, almost the entire world over. Uh, But on top of having affordable housing, we need community programs, well-funded education systems, healthcare, so that, you know, kids and communities can, you know, have 
things to do and things to occupy their time and so that they can remain together and as family and as community and not have these disintegrating worlds that they have to inhabit. Mm -hmm. And so I think this kind of anxiety about hoodies and this pack mentality is very real. And a lot of these films are really trying to fuck with it. And, And so I think that them on a scale of politics kind of like it brushes up against progressive uh-huh. because of that question of who is them. Yeah. But this question of who is them, we thought them was the kids mm-hmm. trying to get in the house and murder these people. But for the kids, the yeah. them was Clem and Lucas. Yeah, yeah. And so I think it's just in a very subtle way, kind of just trying to flip that narrative just a little bit. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I totally missed that by the end. I, I thought that the shocker ending was they're so young and they just wanted to play. And I was like, okay, okay. And it's almost like it's less a narrative twist. I almost don't want to call it a twist. It's almost not the right yeah. word. It's uh, it's an inversion of perspective, like just to, to, to throw everything into in, into a different light. But uh, but yeah, like you, I'm not exactly sure where the film lands. It problematizes and it probes, but I feel like it doesn't really take a side, which is fine. Yeah. Which is fine because it's it's compelling and it's thought provoking. Yeah, I think and I think it's very intentional in that way. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not trying to do this big grand like murderers or inside esque you know treaties on you know whatever the fuck those films are talking about. Mm-hmm. You know it's it's and this is why I think it's less at the forefront of the new French extremity mm-hmm. movement. But I this is why I still consider it part of it because mm-hmm. it's grappling with this part of French identity that is hidden for so many different reasons and it's challenging it and it's questioning it. And, um, it's a very visceral film that I, I, for me, it works. I mean, this is probably the fifth or sixth time I'd seen it. I still, that last moment just fucking goes like, (laughs) this knocks the air out of me. It freaks me out. And especially because the image on screen is like the kids just kind of like running up to the bus. Yeah. It's so innocent. Yeah. It couldn't be more contrary to my reality catching the bus in the morning as a kid. Oh, yeah. Just, like, getting a pack of smokes, huh? Just... <laughs> After a up. long night of terrorizing a couple. Yeah. <laughs> so, taking this subject to the other side of the pond, a mere two years later, Brian Bertino's The Strangers. Here we go. I just want to tell you something. What do you want to tell me? You are my girl. I love you, Jimmy. What is that? It's okay, there's nothing here. I haven't heard a dog bark or a car pass. Nothing. Okay? 
Because you were home. The film starts with a voiceover proclaiming some statistics of violent crimes in the U.S. each year, and that the film is inspired by true events. The film takes place in 2005 with the story of James and Kristen, a young couple going through some tension in their relationship. After attending a friend's wedding, at which James proposes and Kristen turns him down, they arrive at James's summer home, where James has prepared a romantic evening that clearly isn't going to happen. When they're about to engage in some comfort sex, they receive a mysterious caller at the door in the middle of the night, asking if Tamara is at home. They turn the unknown woman away, but she returns after James leaves the house to go for cigarettes. Now alone in the house and increasingly unnerved by the persistent knocks at the door, Kristen becomes aware that someone has entered the house and her cell phone is missing. She's hiding in the bedroom when James returns, and their attempt to flee is thwarted by their intruders rear-ending their car. When their friend Mike arrives and has his own car vandalized, he enters the house only to be accidentally shot by James. The events culminate in James and Kristen being tied up in their home, and the intruders finally taking off their childish masks before stabbing the pair. Afterward, a pair of Mormon ambassadors arrive at the door and discover the bloodied bodies inside, but Kristen has survived. Now, this was Brian Bertino's directorial debut, and as I recall, it was quite a sleeper hit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I remember seeing it in theaters, and it's like really like blew my socks off about just how effective and how disciplined this film is. Mm-hmm. Um, it really, like, it's again, it's under 90 minutes but it takes its time. It sets up some emotional stakes. And I think just the appearance of the strangers kind of in and out of the house, um, even as you reach the climax, is still really, really effective. And I will always have the deepest love for this film and the deepest part of my part because my very close and dear friend, Chris, uh, when he and I were living together as roommates, I was showing him all the horror films I could because he was interested in them. Uh And one night I showed him The Strangers Uh and he was so scared. He, by like midway through the film, I was sitting on the couch. He was standing on the couch, pointing at the TV and just screaming, mouth open, like Donald Sutherland in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, just (sighs) like, I want to feel anything as deeply as Chris feels something. Yes. I mean, same. But like, it was like, I was not at all scared by the movie watching at that time because I was having way too much fun watching the movie that Chris was giving me. Uh-huh, so uh-huh. we still have a lot of like weird jokes about it. But um, yeah, have a deep, deep love for this film because of how much it traumatized my friend. It's great. And it holds up. I'd seen it. I don't remember the first time I saw it, but I've seen it a handful of times. But I was kind of impressed on the rewatch at how well it yeah. holds up in terms of like, I know what's going to happen, but still the atmosphere and tension are pitch perfect. The skipping record player always sticks with me yeah. as like such a great, simple oral cue of the natural flow of events being disrupted, you know, like that which turns music into noise. I think it's great. I also love how there are moments where the audience knows a thing or two that the characters don't know. Like we're kind of led into the fact that, you know, there's a cell phone in the fireplace and they never find that. We think they're going to find it later, but it's a little something that we know that they don't know. And then later when the killers take off their masks at the end, we don't get to see their faces, but James and Kristen do. And all we get is their reaction and the lack of recognition. That's all we need to know that these are indeed 
strangers. And I think that was so um, accomplished for a directorial debut. Yeah. And I think it was a clearly Bertino had a really strong sense of what he wanted to do with the film mm-hmm. and where not to push and where to push. Mm-hmm. You know, understanding this is a film about atmosphere, as you said, like, this is where I want to play. Mm-hmm. This is where I want to explore. I love the amount of um, long, long shots he has, mm-hmm. uh, like long is in the length of them, but also the camera's really pulled back. So you're watching things in the background. And like, I remember again, watching it with Chris, when he was just saw it, like, you notice like Baghead just coming out mm-hmm. and he was just like ah! it was like that's exactly how Bertino wanted it to work and that's exactly how it plays yeah and there's there's just such perfection in that yeah and I, I don't have a good grasp on Bertino as a creative um I, it, this was his directorial debut he wrote and directed it and then in 2020 he wrote and directed The Dark and the Wicked which also did really well and I think he he wrote and produced a couple of things in between yeah he did uh, I think another film called what was it like Monster with Zoe Kazan I don't know. Which I saw it. It wasn't, it wasn't great. Yeah. And I, I didn't, I know a lot of people love Dark and the Wicked. It, it, that one kind of lost me. I liked it yeah. enough that I wanted to do big coverage in Rue Morgue and the PR that were representing it were very, uh, they were pushing hard for that yeah. and they were offering me a lot. And I was like, okay, well, if I can talk to, if I can talk to Bertino next week, you've got a cover story. Like, let's go. Mm. And they're like, mm, how did they put it? Bertino is press averse. Must be nice. A, must be nice. And B, why? Your films are well received. This is a cover story in Rumorg. This isn't, uh, you know, TMZ wanting to ask what you got up to at that party. Where home number? Yeah, where an intern doesn't remember what happened last night. Like I, I, I didn't understand, and I was kind of annoyed. And it's one of those stupid occupational hazards where I'll get a bee in my bonnet about a filmmaker. Anyway, all this to say, I think he's uh, a bit of a weirdo. Um, but I do love this film. I do think it stands up. I do wonder how much of my analysis is imposed and how much of it is intentional, but there's still a lot to chew on with this film. Oh, fuck yeah. And I think like this film, like them has, you know, clearly Bertino has a love for the horror genre. Like, I actually forgot about the voiceover opening and I was like, all right, calm down there, Texas Chainsaw. Uh-huh. Like it was just, it was, it was like, that was the only part where I was like, this is a bit too on point with that. This is a story that is real. And like from the annals of blah, 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 you know, just it didn't work for me. It doesn't work. No, you don't need it. we don't need it. I, I also forgot that. And in, in, in the rewatch, I was just kind of like, what is this? And then like, yeah, the, the kind of the, the very tay of like the implication that we're hearing actual audio from the calls and stuff. It's like, why? Yeah. And I mean, like I did some research that, um, you know, the quote unquote true story of this comes from an experience when uh, Bertino was a child and he was home alone with his sister and people were like knocking on the door and his sister answered and they were like, is someone by another name home? Mm-hmm. And she was like, no. And they were like, okay. And so what they had been doing was going around the neighborhood and robbing the homes of people who weren't there. Yeah. Bertino has also expressed um, that he was influenced by the Manson family murders. Sure. And then other people have also speculated that it was inspired by the Ketty murders, which happened in rural California in 1981. Uh, but yeah, it's just as real as anything else you could pull from in like true crime or anything like that. You know, Golden State Killer, like there's a ton of sources you could pull from 
and say yeah. this is based on a true thing. And, and I'm pretty sure I've talked about this before on this podcast, but I wanted to bring it back because both of these films rely on that true narrative mm-hmm. element to it. Uh, so what I did some of my final work on in my master's horror films that purport to be real mm-hmm. and that aren't. So the main theory I used was from Jean Baudrillard, one of our faves, uh, and his book, Simulacra and Simulation from 1981. And Baudrillard's whole thing was that current society has replaced reality with symbols and signs, aka a simulation, if you will. And these symbols are within media, which teaches us how to move through our world and our lives. Like you, you made this example years ago on this show, and I always reference it because it's so good. Up all the time. But like you had mentioned the example of, you know, when we're kids and we don't kind of understand what love and romance is because we don't watch our parents date, mm-hmm. but we understand what love and romance is through the content we consume, film, TV, etc. So the media we consume and it's, you know, ways of creating symbols and signs does influence us in the way we move through the world. And that's why this kind of discourse is very important. So in the movement of something that is real to a simulation or a simulacra, as Baudrillard would want to call it, there are four stages. One is a faithful copy. Two is a perversion of reality. Three is absence of reality, where it pretends to be faithful, and four is pure simulacrum, where there is no tie to reality. And I think you could argue the strangers and even, you know, them especially, but like for the strangers, maybe fit in between three and four, like, okay, there's like a childhood incident vaguely, also Manson family murders, but there's no James, there's no Kristen, there's no family home, no failed proposal. Like that's all made up effectively, but it's all made up. And the problem is, and what Baudrillard is really interested in is the effects. And his main concern is that it confuses value and usefulness. So this film, by saying it's real, is teaching us what to be scared of and how we need to survive. So this is telling us that home invasions are real, Mm -hmm. They're terrifying. Mm -hmm. They're harrowing. And you don't want to be fucking near one. Mm -hmm. The question for us becomes is how truthful is this fear? And I found another article by a professor from the University of Chicago, Harold Pollack in uh, The Nation. And the article is called, We Fear Each Other When Guns Themselves Are the Real Danger. And it's a really interesting article. Link it in the show notes. But Pollock's whole point is that we've been conditioned to fear intruders so much so that we are being sold guns at an alarming rate. Like when I tell you, I Googled without thinking, weaponizing home invasions or home intruders. I got like, which is the best gun to buy? Like I literally, I now have gun ads. Uh, Yeah, fantastic. And so Pollock cites low figures in home invasion, but high death counts between people living together where guns are available in the home. Uh Uh-huh. Yes, I'm so glad that you hit on that. I didn't think to apply this to Baudrillard, but the more I think about it, it's almost post-simulacrum in that... Um, it borrowed from reality, inspired by reality, maybe subverted that reality, turned into a fiction, which is that its result is very real. And the result is the fear that it engenders and the 
idea that this is something Americans need to be afraid of. I remember in one of the opening, you know, like the stupid verite opening things, it, I almost found it duplicitous because it said something to the effect of there's this much violent crime in the U.S., but they're not referring to home invasion. No. They're not referring to violent domestic crime. So where's your citation, brah? No citation, no basis in reality. Um, because the reality is that home invasion is a lot less common than we think. Home invasions that involve violence are relatively rare. They most often happen when a family isn't home, as per the anecdote that you gave before. And so, you know, like what home invasion movies are really suggesting about our reality, that we're not safe, that the kids aren't all right, but they actually have a far more sinister function in that they're stoking the fires of irrational fears that can be leveraged toward political ends and agendas like gun control, like police, like a lot of stuff that is really, really relevant right now. And it begs the question, you know, um, in doing research on this film, I like this film. I think it's interesting. I also find it kind of conservative. Oh, totally. I absolutely agree with that. I, I mean, again, we've talked about this so many times on the podcast, like you can enjoy media, you can still get something out of it. We're, you know, there's more stuff I want to talk about with this film, but we can still critique it. <laughs> and that's where we are. And I was all on this, like home invasions are like a small percentage of crime, blah, blah, blah. I'm on that train, rah, rah, rah. However, in the last few weeks, and we're recording this beginning of November 2022, mm -hmm. there have been a few very high-profile home invasions. Mm -hmm. um, the big international one was uh, recently, a few weeks ago, uh, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi's uh. home was broken into by a right-wing zealot who brutally attacked her husband with a hammer. Yeah. She was not home at the time, so there was no security. Um, and thankfully, they expect uh, Paul Pelosi to make a full recovery. But that was fucking crazy. Like, I remember I had a morning of meetings and I like took a break for lunch and I was just like, I just need to turn on the TV and I've seen it. And I put it on and it was like this very harrowing account of this older man in his eighties being like attacked and fighting off this guy with a fucking hammer. And then also recently there is a really upsetting incident here um, near where I used to live in the West End of Toronto, where a woman had her apartment broken into and she was sexually assaulted. And I've seen the story shared on Instagram. There are apparently posters all up in the area, you know, detailing like, be aware and like a man followed her home. And, you know, so as much as, you know, I want to stress, there is a kind of conservative right wing gun toting element to this there is still a real world element to it, which is why I have a bat beside my bed. Oh yeah, there's definitely a reality. Even though it's relatively rare, they are terrifying when they happen. And I think it's because we all, well, we mostly have a home. We mostly have, you know, we don't all have a, a car that can be stolen or jewels that might be burgled, but we all have things that we hold dear. We all hold dear our privacy. And, and then the violation of that is a very real violation. So it's something that we can all relate to. You know, that said, true crime and overrepresentation of, of, of these property crimes. Yeah, no, I, I think true crime is such an interesting tenet of this because like, if you look at um, so the anxiety around the new Netflix series Dahmer, mm -hmm. or sorry, it's called Monster, but it's about Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah, and whatever, you, you know, you all know. Uh, and I think you know we have this anxiety about it. We have this anxiety of it. Ha it really happened, so it could happen to me. And we are being 
fed very entertaining, very effective media that perpetuates it. So in a world of simulacra, where these original truths are being spun out into entertaining content, we have to ask where our fear is being directed. And I think in truth, it's a really complicated answer, but to put on my Marxist feminist hat, I think we are taught to fear what is outside of the heteronormative family structure in these films. Oh, yeah. Who the strangers are in the film is never really questioned like it is so bluntly in them. Mm-hmm. However, um, there is a, a general anxiety about the status of Kristen and James's relationship, mm-hmm. um, how they're going to defend each other. Will they defend each other? And like, I want to talk about James in a little bit, but I, I think there are moments in this where they have dialogue together and it's like, wait, are they strangers to each other? Not in the same way that it's like the big, you know, gut punch of them, but there's a little like, do they really know each other? Also, who proposes in a parking lot at another wedding? Oh, you didn't think it was so romantic? No. But it's your boy. No. <laughs> no, like, I mean, at least wait till you get back to the romantic setting. I mean, in a parking lot and she's cold. Men... Get it together. I often think about to what extent fear is constructive. I often think about to what extent being aware of danger actually makes me more or less prepared or susceptible to danger. And I think we've talked about this on the podcast before with regard to, you know, wearing headphones out in the street. And, you know, like it's such it's such a fine line for somebody who has experienced a home invasion. I have other friends who have never experienced that and lock their doors 10 times. And if they think they hear something, they go check it out. Whereas, you know, I'll wake up in the night and be like, oh, well, it's a dog, you know? <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a really interesting and tenuous relationship between fear mongering and awareness. And I think to point out that uh, this fractured couple are living in a space that's, um, that's kind of liminal in their relationship and that doesn't really conform to their expectations and their plans, at least one of their expectations and to plans only to have the night devolve into complete chaos makes a really great story. There are a lot of little nuggets in the film that speak to these heteronormative plans and expectations that I want to talk about. Great. So let's start with the house itself. This isn't their house. This is James's family home. And I thought it was really interesting when uh, Kristen is just kind of uh, looking around and she's on her own and moving around in the house and she stops upon uh, that ledge where there's markers of how he grew up. Like such a great snapshot of intergenerational domesticity. The fact that this house has been in the family forever and, you know, it's something that she is potentially prepared to give up in a very tangible sense. You know, there's the future she has with him, the security, their love, their future, like what all the abstractions, all the feelings, all the institutions, but there's also something very tangible in the house that that's what that represents. And it is disrupted sort of by her rejecting the proposal but then by these intruders after the fact. And having a family summer property is such a conspicuous marker of privilege. Uh, And it represents the ongoing line of that privilege, of course, as I mentioned. And I loved how with home invasion films, it's like there's no home field advantage. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, even though they know the house better, uh, even though James has a gun, eventually it's the willingness to do harm on the part of the invaders that puts the power in their hands, which I always think is interesting. But I wanted to ask you about James and the fucking gun. (gasps) Let's 
fucking talk about now, that. Now, why on earth would you lie about having hunted? Like, that is one of those bullshit, I assume, hetero male things that you just lie about to impress a girl. It's boggling to me. It's, again, it's one of those moments that I think actually grounds the film. Yeah. When they actually just look at each other and it's, uh, we're under siege. Yeah. In, we are under attack. We are terrified. And you just fucking lied to me? Which is seemingly an innocuous lie in a larger context. But in this moment of life and death, it's like, wait a minute, you don't know how to shoot a gun? Yeah. I thought you fucking did. Yeah, yeah. Go get me more cigarettes. <laughs> Not that it would have made that much of a difference if he had admitted like, hey, my dad has a gun in the house, but I've never shot it before. Would it have really changed their plight all that much? No, it would have only changed her expectations mm-hmm. of how he can protect her in that situation. And yeah, I thought it was really um, considering that they already have so much to talk about that they're never going to get to talk about. No, so and one it's, more log on that part. It was so, I think, genius because... Because as you already mentioned, the privilege of owning that kind of home, it's this rustic cabin, but it's very nicely done mm-hmm. and it's it's out in the middle of nowhere. So normally if people actually, if you were living there full time, you might be hunting, you might be part of that community. Mm. But I think his not doing the hunting is like, okay, I'm a generation at least removed from this. I come here to sip wine. Yeah. And get almost dumped. So as we were talking about them and we talked about the anonymity of the hoodie, I think it's really notable that uh, we've got three very iconic masks. So masks, I think, are such a great emblem of this being like an American production, an almost Hollywood slash indie production, because masks to me in the horror film represent iconography. Mm. Iconography to me represents ownership, merchandising, you know, it's, it's a whole Mm -hmm. little industry that you've got because of this. And, you know, this was a small film initially, and then it went went on, as you mentioned, to be a sleeper hit. It's, you know, spawned a sequel, which we'll, we'll touch on. Um, but in this film, there are three very clearly delineated villains, all marked by their masks. And it, it was interesting to me because just even on the Wikipedia article for this film, there was a lot of stuff that was like, oh, this film is emblematic of random violence that became part of, you know, 9-11. And I was like, my bitches, what part of 9-11 was random? Ooh. We talked about this and we talked about it in our torture porn episode, but this kind of notion of like the arts and random violence, it was like, no, the repressed is returning to us. That's right. The, the idea that this couldn't happen to us here. Exactly. And so the male figure, the male villain, he's credited as man in mask. To me, I was always calling uh, like a, like bag head or yeah. Uh, I don't know if I read that somewhere else or something I you know intuited somewhere else. But to me, it always reminded me of the leaked photos from Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo Bay. And Abu Ghraib photos were leaked in 2004. Uh, Guantanamo Bay were um, in 2002, and this is where it was released that people being detained due to the war on terrorism after 9-11 were being brutalized by American soldiers and the American intelligence community. They had bags on their heads. They were being sexually assaulted. They were being tortured and they were being mocked and soldiers and intelligence people were taking photos. And then these photos leaked through major uh, news sources. So these uh, leaks were at this point part of the cultural discourse. So I, I felt like there was this kind of return of the masculinity that that had been tied to a 9-11 attack mm. that had, that is now returning mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. you know, you anonymized me, you tortured me, 
And now I'm coming back for you. Yes. And I'm coming back for you in this place where you think you're safe, where your family has occupied, and now I'm going to come and take it from you. And here I was thinking about Friday the 13th part two. <laughs> Jason was like a precursor to the war on terror. <laughs> and then uh, the two other masks, yes. Dollface and Pinup Girl. Mm-hmm. So I was like thinking about it. And then I was like, is this too much of a reach? And then I was like, faculty of horror. What's too much of a reach these days? We are for reaching. As I watch this film, I think their presence is only truly felt, you know, in their masks, not after, you know, knocking at the door in darkness, Mm -hmm. uh, is only really felt after Kristen changes out of her pretty dress. Uh There is a transference of femininity. Kristen in her changing, which totally on board for, you're in a really pretty dress, but at some point you want to get out of it. Yeah. You want to put on some nice flannel. Yeah. Um, when you reject this kind of heteronormativity, this, you know, I'm in a dress, I'm an offering, and I'm about to be proposed to at my most beautiful, uh-huh. um, then this kind of like cursed femininity returns to her. Uh-huh. And this like the pinup girl and doll face, these very emblematic elements of a masculinized femininity, this like male gaze of femininity are like returning to them. So I, I think like Bertino said, interviews like oh i want the mask to look like something you could buy anywhere okay yeah which fine but you know as we've talked about before there is the intention and then like unconscious intention right you know so if you're picking women what is more horrifying than a kind of over-the-top exaggerated femininity Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah and i think that's what these two are playing with also i was shocked on the rewatch to realize that they put her back in the dress at the end yes i didn't catch that the first dozen times i watched this love it yeah She's being forced to redo it. And that's also when James notices she put on the ring. Yeah. Because she puts it on earlier and she's kind of looking at it and then she can't get it off. And then, you know, shit goes to hell. Mm-hmm. And that's when he notices and he's kind of like crying and he's dying and, you know, mm-hmm. he can't get her any more cigarettes. When I think about masks and the use of masks in The Strangers and, and, and I think of, you know, the more Americanized context of this home invasion tale... Uh, by contrast with Eel, is I always just think that Americans are afraid of everything. Mm-hmm. They are afraid of everything and everyone. And having their invaders don masks, you know, keeps it from being like Americans are afraid of Black people, let's say. Americans are afraid of immigrants or Americans are afraid of children or the elderly or the this and that. It just kind of puts a big blank slate that yeah. can be applied to absolutely everything. Totally. And it's a little bit xenophobic and I feel like it works. Yeah, I mean, I don't like it, but it works. And uh, yeah, I did I did almost pick up how the attackers are like, they're, they're unified as this sort of nuclear family of sorts where there's a masculine, more anonymous, a childlike, and then one painted with this old school Hollywood glamour that kind of represents the nuclear family unit that Kristen has rejected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's so interesting that the last moments of the film when she's asking why, why, why is because you were home. Mm-hmm. And so it actually doesn't matter that it's not truly their home. I, I think it's interesting because again, like we're talking about with them and you know, it, it's that complication of what is a home? Mm-hmm. Whose home is it? Uh, we're both renters. So are places that we occupy our homes or are they our landlord's homes? Mm-hmm. And like, do, does my, um, you know, past homes, do they still represent me? Do they represent a past me? Like my child, like there's so many different ways you can kind of tease out what is a home. Mm-hmm. And this, I think, really essentializes it to it is a structure. 
you were in it and that was enough for us. Mm -hmm. And it becomes a very transactional thing because I think as people and communities, we really conflate our value with our homes. And, you know, each and every time you move, you want to try to better it a bit more. And, you know, I think it's a very, very natural instinct. It's one I certainly have. This gets down to like, no, you were out the door. Mm -hmm. You opened it. Mm -hmm. That was all that matters. And I think it's interesting because it also inverts Bertino's childhood memory. The people didn't enter the home because the two kids were there. Mm -hmm. And in his telling of his childhood story, meanwhile, here is they would have left the home alone if seemingly it had been empty. Right. And that has become the tagline for this film. It's on the posters. Yeah. It's, 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 it's become iconic. The other thing iconic about the film, smoking indoors. Uh, <laughs> I know. Each and every time I'm like, Smoking in the bathtub. Ah! Imagine. Now, I have read a couple of arguments. I don't agree with them, but that almost imply that if Kristen had have accepted James's marriage proposal, the night would have gone differently. Maybe they would have gone to bed earlier and the lights would have been out and maybe the whole thing wouldn't have happened. Now, it's a weird speculative observation, but one that also has a bit of indictment on Kristen that this is her fault. And, you know, I think in the end, we can read the strangers as having some conservative messaging with regard to defending your house and home and the senselessness and like, you've got to represent a unified front in the great American way or the great American way is what's going to be under attack. But I think ultimately, it's kind of up to us to decide, is Kristen being punished for exercising her choice and agency and wanting to wait. It's not even like she no. said no. She said not yet. Or does it kind of just point the finger at a society that would punish such a decision? You know what I mean? Like oh, is yeah, the indictment yeah. kind of broader than that. So insofar as I think there is conservative messaging in here, I don't think it's full on. I don't know. I don't feel angry at it. No, I, I don't either. And I, and I think to me, I, I see that reading and I can acknowledge it. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it's more about the randomness of it. And, and I yeah. think the, the proposal and the tension between them, because again, they're not breaking up, but it's certainly a crossroads yes. for them. Like James really put himself out there and she rejects it. And it's like, okay, where do we go from here? Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a big fucking conflict. Like that, that's a movie in and of itself. And I, I feel like they were about to make up. They were yeah. certainly about to fuck. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that was more so used to give the characters weight. Mm -hmm. So they felt like real people. So we understood them to be in a bit of a complicated moment in their relationship. So it, we kind of had to kind of guess at where they were going to be. Mm -hmm. um, one of the really telling moments about their relationship is that after you know, James shoots his buddy by accident, mm -hmm. well, Kristen is very comforting. She's shocked. She's scared. But she's not screaming or yelling or blaming him. Mm -hmm. She was like, you didn't know. You didn't know. Um, uh, she's truly, I think, trying to keep him and them together, mm -hmm. which is more significant in a moment of peril than it is about like a fucking ring. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think Clem was like that too. I yeah. think all the characters in here, I mean, I, I have read reviews of the film that uh, criticized stupid people making stupid decisions. I didn't feel that way. I didn't feel like anyone did anything that I necessarily wouldn't have, uh, especially under so much chaos and duress. And I think for any movie that's intentional with ambiguity, we seek to rationalize it. And yeah. to seek to rationalize it by blaming Kristen's agency is a bit icky to me. 
Yeah. No, I think, you know what? If Scott Steinman really loves you, hang out. Hang around. He'll get you cigarettes. Yeah. Now, what did you make of Kristen surviving? Because that was another thing that I don't think I remembered. And on the rewatch, I was like, oh, that happened? I think it, to me, it was more about like that final scare. Yeah. You know? Um, and I think it was interesting that, you know, we had the two little like Mormon religious kids show up at the end. Yeah, yeah. And they encounter the strangers. Uh, and then they encounter Kristen and James, and they're the ones that make the call. Yeah. I kind of feel like it, it, it really renders this film as part of that almost... I don't think it's fully torture porn, but I see it as kind of adjacent to it at the very least, where it is, you know, it's violence for violence sake. There is no God, there is no religion in this film. And coming out of, you know, period, particularly within the 70s and 80s, where if you had the presence of God, that meant good was happening. Mm-hmm. And you could just, you know, say a Hail Mary and bing, bang, boom, they're done. And Freddy Krueger goes back to hell um this one is like no there is no god there's no devil there is just pure chaos and i and i think that is kind of emblematic of that and, and even the fact that you know they encounter the strangers and they ask for a pamphlet and they're like well we'll get it easier next time mm-hmm. the pamphlet doesn't change anything it doesn't do anything for them it's just another bizarre interaction with this world and this um strange atmosphere that is created within the film yeah, I feel like it it reflected a detachment on the attitudes of the invaders. Are you a sinner? Well, sometimes. Yeah. Um, and also, like, I don't think The Strangers involves juvenile delinquency as much as the other film does. But I, I think it, it's the flip side of that is these Mormon children who are spending their Saturday afternoon pamphleting, like maybe not entirely by choice, but they don't seem too unhappy about it. And further, insofar as, you know, religion is dead and community is dead, moving into a small residential house right now, the only people who ever come to my door are seeking charity or seeking religion. Like that's a very old worldly thing and it's it could have been their salvation it was certainly how they were discovered but at the same time it doesn't beat us over the head if they needed christ no 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 it was just it's kind of like this like strange outlier that Uh exists within the world but doesn't seem to impact it that's right other than to make the phone call Uh uh-huh and that that's the only thing they can do is make the phone call they can't save anything with with religion and so then she jumps out we get that final stinger scare i guess and it seems perfectly poised for a sequel that goes on with Kristen. That's not what we got, is it? No, we got uh, Strangers Pray by Night. Pray at night. Pray. They do something. They pray at night. They pray. Uh, I, I rewatched it the other night. Um, yeah, it got a lot of hype when it came out. I think a lot of people love like the scene where uh, the man in the mask is chasing the teenage kid against like the pool and Total Eclipse of the Heart is playing. I that. I was like, okay. I found it quite boring. Yes. Well, it was, it was a, it was a chasey slasher, yeah. you know, like they were kind of in that trailer and there was some effective thrills and chills, but it didn't have this thematic connection to the home, the privacy, the sanctity. It was just a family. It's gift. much more rambling yeah. and like the family with the kid who's like gone to bo- like boarding school. I was just a bit like, I don't care. Yes. I don't care. Um, so, but I know, I know it has a lot of love. It just clearly didn't resonate with either of I, us. I, I read that there were rumblings of another one. I wouldn't yeah. be surprised, but uh, sure. do you, do you recall if Bertino was involved in this? He was, I, I, yeah, I was watching the credits the other night. I think he was co-screenwriter oh, okay. on Pray at Night. Yeah. Pray the night. Pray during night. Pray the night. Pray it. Pray. <laughs> well, I think that wraps that up. <laughs> 
I think we've officially reached the bottom of the stranger's barrel. I, I think we've, we've checked every crevice of the home. Uh-huh. We've rejected Scott Speedman in all of his forms. Mm-hmm. Just for now. Just for now. Till he comes back with cigarettes. Because now we have to look forward. We have to look ahead. And in looking ahead, we're also looking back. I am so excited. This is like one of those announcements that I wish we could see our listeners' faces. Can you guys please take selfies after yeah. you okay, hear this? Yeah, pause. Get your camera ready. Yeah, yeah. And take, I don't know, take a photo if you want. Uh, maybe I'm overselling it, but yeah. I'm excited. Well, and especially because we came up with this idea like a year ago. Yeah. So we've been you just did. sitting on this for a year. Uh-huh. So in the spirit of what horror has become in the last decade. Of what faculty of horror has become <laughs> in the last decade. For our December 2022, 10 years of doing this podcast, we're going back to where it all began. Uh-huh. We're going back to Black Christmas 1974 and Halloween 1978. We are going to rewatch, reevaluate, talk about it uh definitely mention remakes requels and all of that but uh-huh. we're gonna remake and requel ourselves that's right it's so meta yeah. 10 years later we are going to listen to that first episode and we are going to reckon with that uh we're gonna do that later today patreon. actually that'll be on our patreon so if you want to suffer along that with us uh, <laughs> definitely <laughs> subscribe and i cannot wait yeah, I think it's going to be really fun. Uh, I've got some stuff to sort out before then, but if you can make it December 7th at the Garrison here in Toronto, tickets are pay what you can. Links for everything are going to be in the show notes. So check that out. If not, that will, if you can't make it to Toronto for, you know, many, many valid reasons, mm-hmm. um, then it will be our December episode. So you will get to hear it before the end of the month. And Last but not least, merch class of 2022 is still available. One more month. One more month. And then it's gone. And it's gone forever. There's always some of you. There's always some of you who email, <laughs> oh, I missed it. And I'm going to have a couple more extra. No, I don't. I say, I am not reactivating that T Public site. No, hell no. 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 I'm not spending that 30 seconds. We're not doing it. Not doing it. Got to get it now. Now or never. And until Tamara comes home. Office hours are closed.